Molly? Owen? What are we sighing about this week? Uh, It's only episode one, but what isn't there to sigh about these days? Welcome to PolySci, the podcast where, episode by episode, we take a collective sigh and break down the political frustrations of the world, bridging political science jargon to the issues and, hopefully, solutions that matter to you. Each episode, we talk with a political scientist to get their story, hear what they're researching, and why you should care about it, and hopefully what you can do. We're your hosts, Molly and Owen. Molly, what do we have on today's agenda? So today we are talking with Courtney Johnson, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and she studies American politics. So things along the lines of tolerance and affective polarization, specifically along lines of partisanship. So essentially that means how do people identify with a party and then how do those political parties get along? Sure enough, we both know Courtney personally. She and I are in the same political science department. So, as a safe promise to our listeners, I can assure you that Courtney's research is not only applicable to real-world politics going on at this very moment, but that she also cares about her research actually having a reach outside the academy. Courtney's work on partisan polarization and tolerance may seem particularly relevant these days, with protests in Portland to people pulling up Trump signs and Biden signs in people's yards. If you look around the media today, it's really easy to see signs of polarization within the United States, I would say. This can harken back to really vivid images we see in Charlottesville, to what we see with the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer, and a recent New York Times report that said that over 50 people since May have have had cars driven into peaceful protests. So this seems very serious. But at the same time, a lot of these are assumptions regarding today's level of tolerance and polarization. It's kind of out of the bounds of my research, so I can't say I have any concrete evidence to support these observations. It just certainly seems like things are indeed a lot more polarized in the U.S. now than at least when I was growing up. Well, we can promise you that Courtney clarifies these topics, and although some of her findings may not be too uplifting... At the very least, they make us feel a bit more aware of the actual political climate that we're working with instead of guessing. So if you want to hear about just how divided the U.S. is today, how it compares to decades before, the influence of social media and the Trump administration upon today's divisions, and whether any of this has to do with policies or just mere partisan identities, and maybe how we can moderate some of this tension, then stick around and enjoy my conversation with Courtney Johnson. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Courtney Johnson. I'm a PhD candidate in political science, and my focus areas are American politics, where I study American political behavior and research methods, and I focus on survey methods and experimental methods. Courtney, could you share some of the research that you're doing right now? What are the actual projects that you're coming across these days? 
Yeah, sure. So what I focus on is affective polarization, more my older work. I do stuff with partisan tolerance and broader political tolerance. And I do, um, I study race as well. And specifically how white identity and those who identify as white have differing attitudes toward black protest speech. And so when you walked in to basically your poli-sci career, did you have these research interests already honed? What, what was kind of your state of mind back then? Honestly, I kind of did. I think I'm a little weird in that I knew I wanted to study political behavior. I've never really cared much for the other areas of political science as a research interest. Of, of course, I studied them um, and I teach them. But for research interests, I always wanted to do political behavior. And specifically, I was really interested in polarization um, and political communication when I, when I entered. And I've stuck with those largely, although my polarization interest has melded and formed into more of a tolerance interest over time. Maybe we'll go about this in a few parts, but I do know that your research does kind of hit home. Is that right? Like there's actually personal motivation in studying what you do? Yeah. So I am the political black sheep of my family. I definitely don't hold the same partisanship as my family, the same views, and even a lot of the same what we could consider political values are quite different. And I was curious why somebody who was raised in a family and socialized to believe a certain way could end up believing a different way, which is the socialization literature isn't something I really do research in, but I've read a lot about. And then I I also was curious, why do people who are of our opposite partisanships hate each other so much, for lack of a better term? Um, what's causing this? And I was noticing like actual relational rifts in my family that I found really interesting that I thought might be something interesting to study, that how does that happen? And then once it happens, why does it affect those other relationships? How does it affect things that aren't considered political? So when you were kind of having these thoughts and these feelings, as you're describing, do you think that the United States was more polarized than compared to now? Because a lot of things you're going to hear, I think, on social media and just anecdotally, just like this has never been so divisive of a time. And I'm curious, do you agree with that sentiment? Um, well, I think the Civil War was probably a little bit more divisive. Uh, but in the 30 <laughs> years I've been on this planet, we'll say, um, yeah, this empirically is widely considered to be the most divisive time on a lot of different fronts. Um, on the the affective front, which I'll go ahead and explain that term so that listeners know what I'm talking about there. But it's basically how much you like or dislike someone based purely on their partisanship. So how would you rate them if they were a Republican versus if they were a Democrat? And do those numbers differ? And if they differ a lot, the person is considered to be affectively polarized. So it's really emotional. That's why it's called affective. It's it's the emotional polarization. It's not about policy. It's not about congressional politics and what you want actually done. It's not even so much about who you're voting for. It's about who you identify as. And then how you perceive people of different identities and how that shapes how you feel about them. So it's group dynamics. It's it's that group conflict. So that is quite high um, for my, my qualifying paper. I did this little happy little chart of data from the last... I think it was from 1956 from the American National Election Study. And I did a... I just did a really, really rudimentary... Um, 
attitudinal like time series analysis. And I just watched that affective polarization number creep up and up and up. And I went up to 2016 and it was 2016 and 2012 were both the highest it had ever been. They were about the same number. Obviously, I didn't have 2020 data yet. I can't imagine it's gotten better in the last four years. And then also on that more policy polarization stance. Now, there's not a consensus that the American public has a lot of policy polarization. There's a lot of reasons for that I don't need to go into, but there's not a consensus. We don't necessarily think that a average American Republican and the average American Democrat are policy-wise more far apart than they've ever been in the past. But in Congress, they are empirically farther apart than they've ever been. So what it means to be a Democrat in Congress and a Republican in Congress, they are policy-wise further apart than they've been, at least in our lifetimes. So on pretty much all measures, except for policy polarization in the public, yes, it has gotten worse. So the term affective polarization, is that right? Looking at basically intolerance or hate, so, dislike of each other? Um, so tolerance, the way that we view tolerance is really different from the more colloquial definition of tolerance, which is where you're just like vibing and chilling and happy with them and you're not big on ruining their lives. Political tolerance specifically, it's it's measured one of two ways and often these ways are, are put together. So one of them is how protective are you of the civil rights and liberties of a group that you don't like? So if you don't like that group, are you still wanting to allow them to speak in public, teach in your schools? Would you still want them to have a spot on your local radio station? Those sorts of things, those civil liberties and civil rights. Do you want them to have those things? And then on the other side is threat. How threatened are you by them? Do you think that they're corrupting society? Do you think they're corrupting the youth? Do you, do you think that they are harming society? Do you think they're coming to get you? And that's more threat. But a lot of scholars have kind of combined these terms into tolerance. And I typically, when I do my work, I focus a lot more on the civil liberty side of it. And then I always take the threat measures so that I can basically add them in if I get a reviewer that wants me to. But that's how we view tolerance. It's more how much would you want to protect their civil liberties? And so I've done work on partisan tolerance. I think we were doing one of the first, if not the first paper on it, that's going to be sent out for publication, hopefully, hopefully three months ago, um, <laughs> aka hopefully soon. Um, and it is about how affective polarization can lead to decrease partisan tolerance. So how tolerant you are of Republicans or Democrats, whoever's the opposite group from you, if you're affectively polarized, you are less politically tolerant. And we found that very robustly. How are you quantifying then of someone actually being, so you said, for example, it's like willingness and acceptance of being, being in a local area, like working at a nearby shop. Is this the general type of measurement? Is this the way you actually evaluate the American hate? Yeah. Well, you opened a can of worms that I'm not sure you're aware of. There's a I just I just finished writing an Oxford handbook chapter on tolerance. And almost half of my chapter is about the measurement of tolerance. Because it's 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 there's two ways to measure it. You could either do what's called a least like group where we first ask somebody, okay, who do you hate the most of these 20 groups? Or we give them a text box and says, like, what group do you dislike the most? And we ask it a different way. Do you have to say you hate a group more than another? <laughs> well, everybody does. That's the thing. Everybody, even the most tolerant person in the world, there's one group where you're like, 
eh, not not so much you though. I don't like you so much. And so we we say it in a better way to get around social desirability bias. Obviously, we don't say it in such a way that somebody's going to read it and be like, "Oh, dip! I shouldn't have said that thing." But then we go from there and we ask about that group. Okay, would you do these things? Or there's a lot of evidence that you don't have to do that first step. You can just ask it about predetermined groups and still get a measure of tolerance. And so what we did in our our survey was we asked people, we asked Republicans about Democrats, Democrats about Republicans, and then we just randomly assigned independents to each group. And we looked at, would you allow a rally of 100,000 Democrats in your community? Would you allow a Democrat to have a, a spot on your local weekly news? Would you allow those sorts of questions? And we kept going with that. And then we did this manipulation on, on people where we, we tried to persuade them to change. And so if they gave us tolerant answers, we would basically try to persuade them toward intolerance. And this is based on this, this survey done by – or this experiment done by uh, Jim Gibson. I think it was 1998. It was done in Russia. It was really interesting on uh, Russian citizens on how easy is it to get people to become intolerant and how easy is it to get tolerant people – or sorry, intolerant people to become tolerant. So like can you change it? And the sad finding from Gibson was that it's really easy to make people intolerant and really hard to make people tolerant. And so what was done in this, this survey that we're doing now, and this was done in 2018, we, we basically were like, well, what if, what if this cost $100,000? What if, what if they were talking on your local news, but they were talking about this really, really controversial topic? Would you still do it? And so that's how we measure tolerance. We, we, we kind of try to dig into those attitudes by putting an actual label on it and asking how much would you support these things? And if you think, oh, nobody's going to say no to that, you would be wrong because over half of our sample was intolerant when we did this. We might just bypass this question, but how are you staying as cheery as you are? <laughs> I, uh, I'll give you a really serious answer. I have, a, I have a disability, and it makes it so I'm in pain all the time. And I think I've gotten really good at seeming happy regardless of the amount of pain I'm in. And that happens with my research, too. That's the best way I can describe it. Is it especially painful? So this is kind of getting maybe at that study that you're mentioning as well. Are these are these attitudes the result of like top-down influences like cues from politicians or like institutional influences like maybe specific settings, geography, social networks or are people just kind of like this from your research yeah, you're finding? So I'm I'm actually doing I did a I did a network analysis in that same study and I did find that people with less diverse social networks. And when I say social networks on here, I'm talking about the three people you discuss politics with the most. I'm not talking about Facebook social networks. Um, when I'm using that term, I'm talking about the people you actually talk to. And I found that the if the proportion of people that you talk to t is the same party as you, as that goes up, the more intolerant you become. And if you have a more diverse network, you become more tolerant. Uh, and diversity was measured on Hey, that friend that you listed, list a friend. And I would be like, Owen. And then it would be like, what, what party do you think Owen is? And I would say what party I think Owen is. And then does Owen's and my party match? And then I would do that for two more people. And then if everybody's the same as me, or if two out of three are the same as me, 
I would be considered to have low diversity in my network. And that makes you more likely to become intolerant if you have that. So that's one of the answers. I have an empirical answer for you. Now for the other stuff you asked me about, like top-down influence and elite queuing. And these are all things we think about a lot in American politics. It's, you know, what is Mitch McConnell telling me to believe? What is Nancy Pelosi telling me? What is, you know, all these people telling me, news anchors, political science professors, anything that could be considered this elite source of, of political information? And the, the answer is I don't know because – so I think it's uh, – what is her name? Liliana Mason wrote a book about affective polarization, and, and she wrote about how what social groups you're in, how those used to be politically really different groups, and how maybe your church was really conservative, but your friend group you got beers with was really liberal, and it would all kind of blend, and you'd have all these really diverse social ties. And over time, there has been sorting done where some groups are Republican and some groups are Democrat and Democrats belong to the groups that are Democrat and Republicans belong to the groups that are Republican. And Republicans and Democrats watch different TV. And Republicans and Democrats eat at different restaurants and they drive different cars. And there's been this other work done looking at what you can see that's not inherently political, but that you now cue as partisan. So if you see a picture of Owen at a farmer's market in Birkenstocks in Boulder, Colorado, you assume a partisanship. You assume a partisanship different than if you see some some guy or lady or whatever in a truck at a country concert wearing rhinestone crusted jeans and cowboy boots. You assume a different partisanship, even though there's nothing inherently political about those two pictures. And so the, the idea, there's a lot of ideas that that is what is happening, but it's really endogenous and it's really hard to figure out what led what and how elite queuing happened. A lot of people blame things like Fox News and, and all cable news. I don't tend to personally buy those just because such a, such a small proportion of the public watches those. Like less than 3 million people watch Fox News in our country of nearly 400 million people. Like that's not enough of a proportion to actually be doing anything. But maybe those... That doesn't win you the electoral college. No, those 3 million, not usually, maybe in 2016 it did. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But typically speaking, that's not enough. Maybe the idea is that those people talk to the people in their networks and get them to believe a certain way. But I don't have a clean answer for you. There's, There's been some good work done, but there's not a clear why as of right now. So is there a clear, maybe critical juncture you notice? Because it seemed like you have a time horizon the way you're describing this, where maybe in a bucolic old America, when everybody was all happy and tolerant of each other, likely for many homogenous reasons, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, But when does the literature and what you've come across say that there was actually kind of a turning point when this started to kind of erupt and start actually splitting at the seams where people are now identifying whole packages as you are obviously Republican, you are Democrat, when it wasn't maybe always like this. Yeah, I think the way it happened was so slow. It's like the old adage of a a frog in a pot doesn't realize the water's boiling until it's too late kind of thing. We know that in the 50s, this wasn't a thing. Partisan identity just wasn't strong in the 50s. People would switch their vote choice all the time. There's this this old book called The American Voter, and it's like the pentultimate uh, American political behavior text that you must read in order to get the button that says, I do American politics. Um, 
And <laughs> in that book, they did they did these these interviews with these people, and the people were so politically meh. They didn't care. They were like, "Well, I vote this way because my dad did," but then the last election, I voted that way because my dad wasn't around, and I didn't care. Like whatever was happening, you know, and um, all this yeah. stuff was changing, and then that started changing over time. And I know by by Bush, like George W. Bush, this was a thing. Um, but what happened between, you know, Eisenhower and Bush Jr., there's a lot. There's a lot that could have happened. I know Watergate is often viewed as a watershed moment. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make a pun. Uh, <laughs> but it is because that was like what started this like really bad decline in trust in government and, and this belief that if you said something about a politician on one side of the aisle, they would buy it because they just didn't trust any of them because they're all crooks. That stuff started happening. But I still don't think by the 80s, this, was, this wasn't as bad. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't like it is now. There was oddly a kumbaya going on, I guess, for a few decades, the way you're describing it. And I was curious, you were saying with the language that people were seemed to just take cues from family. And obviously, that still seems to have an impact today that you could probably speak uh, to greater effect on. But do people care more about politics? Because that almost, I think, contradicts a lot of the uh, comments you would see around the world today saying about, oh, people are just politically disaffected, could give less of a care. I there's not a lot of evidence to my knowledge. This is not something I'm an expert on, but to my knowledge, there's not a lot of evidence that political interest has changed. I think what's mm -hmm. happening a lot more now is that people just have so much more access to so much more information and the information that they choose to listen to, they actually get to opt in. We don't all watch the same news. That's probably a big factor in what changed. But yeah, like I don't even know if there were a few decades of kumbaya. I just know that in the 50s, <laughs> it was fine. And in the 2000s, it was garbage. What happened between those two things, it was a really slow process. But I, I know that the opt-in of media sources has some effect on people. Um, I know that the the lack of contact without party partisans has some effect just on the research I've done and on the, on the, the studies I've read. It, it does have an effect on how you view people of the other party. The socialization aspect, what we're getting at with like the family cues, what your family thinks and how that affects how you believe, that to my – now you're making me pull up studies I read over a year ago. So I'm thinking um, <laughs> a lot has happened in the last year. <laughs> but I, I – just, just a few things. There, there aren't that many new studies on socialization. It's just not a literature that a lot of people are doing. So there's a belief that it matters, but that you can get away from it. You can break away from it. And there are other demographic and sociological factors that can affect your partisanship as well beyond your family. I'm curious then, because I feel like the hot button thing that people always just point to is it's social media. It seems like the way you're talking about this polarization story we see in the U.S. today, it definitely seemed to have started before the rise of social media. You're citing like the W. Bush years. And so is this actually having a major impact as people are leading it to be? Or are you familiar with that? You know, back in our first year, I wrote my very first paper on social media use and affective polarization. And I, I dropped that topic like it was hot because every professor <laughs> that read my paper was like, this is good for a first year paper. But it's completely endogenous. What is leading what here? 
And that's my answer to your question. My sense of things, my without empirics to back it up, but just my sense of things is more the opposite, that people have partisanships and they're becoming increasingly important identities. And then they build social media around that partisanship. You follow people on Instagram and TikTok because they fit your partisanship. And you mute people on Facebook or unfriend people on Facebook because they don't fit your partisanship. I don't necessarily think it's the doing of those things that makes you a stronger partisan. Perhaps seeing more information all day makes you more angry. <laughs> but I, I don't think it changes the identity that you have. It could harden that identity. but. I just I don't tend to blame social media. I think of the way we use social media more as an outcome than an input. If- kind of like an instrument. It seems like it's exacerbating already what you feel right. in some way. Right. It's just like there's there's not actually probably maybe 2020 is a bad example for this, but typically there's not that much more bad going on in the world than there ever has been bad going on in the world. It's just that we see it 24 hours a day. And so I wonder if it's the same thing that Republicans and Democrats, they already were going to hate each other. And now we just see it because we have it around all the time. And right now is a weird moment. There's there's a lot of contextual and situational stuff that that doesn't fit neatly into an empirical box. I like the way you're presenting social media, though, because I definitely think it's liable for a lot of the just like polarization, a lot of division, a lot of talking past people. But also the way you're saying is like, actually, it's maybe a reflective mirror that we're saying, oh, look, social media has corrupted me. It's like, oh, no, it's actually been me all along. <laughs> right. Well, all it all social media did was they built it to be addictive and to, to fit with what humans want to know and what, you know what I mean, what humans want to do. It, they're built based on humans and our brains. And the partisan part of it, it's like it, w- it it couldn't be there if we didn't want it to be there because the platforms are built to be addictive and they wouldn't fill them with a bunch of stuff that we would hate, right? I don't know. Again, this is just my take. This is not something I know for sure. Yeah. It's my take that I I tend to believe, just like I tend to believe Trump is an outcome, not an input. I think... Yeah. Trump being president is not a thing causing other political things, other than policy, obviously, but other political attitudes. I I believe that those political attitudes cause Trump. Well, I'll just accept your sincere reading that social media is an accurate reflection and say, I'm as pretty as my social media (laughs) photos tell me I am. But speaking actually about the election, have you seen any sort of polarization that has either increased, has been mediated, had a weird effects as the 2020 election has approached? And does it seem like we can get even more polarized? It seems like it's at a higher point than what we've witnessed in the recent past. But is this a continued trajectory that seems to go possibly even further in the future? I mean, I hope not. I could foresee like the protests that have been happening about racial justice. I could see continuing about electoral outcomes. I I could very much see a world in which power is not transferred easily and where that creates violent protest, potentially. I mean, I don't know. So I think it, it could. I don't I don't know that it will. 
Just like I don't know that once once President Trump is out of office, be it be it in a month, well, I guess January. I should know that I'm a, I do this for a living. Uh, <laughs> January, or be it four years from January, I don't think it's going to just go away. I don't. I, I actually I know it's not going to go away. That I can say. I I know it's not going to go away just because Trump is gone. So I could potentially see it getting worse. I could see it maybe leveling off. Um, I think a lot of a lot of the way that we talk about partisans now is so blatantly us them group conflict oriented that it's going to be hard to to shape it differently. It's a lot of like, I remember I, I have watched a speech with President Trump where he refers to Democrats and says, they do this, they do that, they are like this, you are good, you are like this, you have a good village with good people, and if that village comes, they're going to take all of your crops, and they're going to take all of your housing, and they are going to kill you. Like, that's the level of of uh i was gonna get more graphic and then i (laughs) I kept it tighter that's the level of of thinking we're doing it's very lizard brain it's very innate to humans that we categorize categorize people into groups and we just do it i i see somebody on the street and i tend to categorize whatever gender they're performing and i categorize how old i believe them to be and do I look like I have something in common with them? Am I scared of them? Are they a threat to me? Like we do that very naturally. And that was to make ourselves more safe because the known is safe and the unknown is unsafe. But now we've applied that so strongly to our partisanship that it's, it used to be sports teams, Owen. It used to be that like, I like this sport ball team and you like that one. And I don't like that sport ball team. They suck. And that would be the way we would view sports. And now we view politics that way and worse because it has bigger consequences. There's not a good umpire. There's, there, you know, <laughs> Chris Wallace was trying to be an umpire and then wasn't. And it's just how, you know, how how do you umpire this? And so it just doesn't fit. And it just doesn't, I don't know how it's going to go away. That's my long-winded answer to that question. So I think I've already gotten the answer from you that, and, and I agree with this, I think in, in my own research was what I've come across that Trump is much more of an outcome than a, a cause. In, in your research then, so if we, even when we can think of polarization becoming a little more extended, like with George W. Bush um, in that period, as you were saying, there are still some concrete policy differences we could see, like with taxation, like with um, environmental priorities. So at that point, it did seem like policies were on the table. And I'm curious, it seems the way you're gesturing right now that perhaps the last four years, there actually has been a deliberate, if not deliberate, a very conspicuous turn away from policy that is now much more based on identity. Do you think this has any correlation with the Trump administration? And are you seeing any sort of like large effects as the election is approaching and as we see more and more cues and a lot more of information being fed to us. Yeah. So policy is still there, of course. We when we see coverage, it's right now it's all the Green New Deal and Medicare for all and all of these policies. Um the Trump tax cuts sorts of things. However, if you if you watch this one I'm gonna give Trump 
Trump's presidency and administration more of an input than an output in that he in particular, distinct from his administration, distinct from his vice president, he likes to stay on certain talking points that that aren't policy oriented. And if they are policy oriented, it's it's very guttural. It's very like build the wall. It's not like let's talk about infrastructure week. You know, it's three versus two yeah. percent. <laughs> it's, it's very like it's it's really easy cueing to understand and it's it's not complex policy goals. And I don't think that Republicans or Democrats have abandoned policy. I just think that the average person, when they're thinking about it, it's much more of an identity. And then if you ask them about policies, there's a lot of evidence that policy attitudes are based on your partisanship, not the other way around. You don't pick your partisanship based on the policy attitudes that you have. Often you will pick your policy attitudes, especially on new policies, based on your partisanship. So there are some that are that are really salient to everybody. Pretty much everybody knows their stance on abortion, things like that. But on those those more specific policies, after you pick a partisanship, you often will select into supporting or not supporting a policy based on that partisanship. Well, that, that does make me think then, because I feel like with every conclusion you're coming across here, it, it's a little bit of a dismal uh, finding, kind of like, yeah, things are indeed more polarized than recent history. We are less yeah. tolerant <laughs> of each other. We're not doing it even based off policy differences. Like you do say how there is a wider gaps within like political candidates and the policies they're offering, but that doesn't seem to be the full story of why in the 50s you were less eager to go out and punch another guy in the face compared to now. Well, let me clarify something. About partisanship, they were more tolerant. About race, they were less tolerant. You know what I mean? So it depends about gender issues. They were less tolerant. And so I don't want to mischaracterize tolerance. And that's part of it, too, is it's it's changed. It's not that we're more or less tolerant than we've ever been, because this is just like a sadly a natural outcome of human behavior is to be intolerant towards certain groups that you don't like. But it's more that we have changed whom we are intolerant toward. So in, nobody says on that list, it used the big one used to be communists. That was the thing. When you yeah. ask people, <laughs> communists, LGBTQ, which that's not how they phrased it back then. Don't read those studies. But uh, LGBTQ, atheists, atheists are still on the list. Like people don't like atheists. Um, still to this day, it's the only one that's still on the list that was on the list in the 50s. The list has changed and partisanship is on the list now. I think that's a better way to describe it. What I find really interesting, I think, is that every single one of those labels, you could almost describe through a partisan lens these days, yeah, where you can you say, look, this is the party that has a bunch of people that look different than us, or that have different sexual orientations than mm -hmm. us, or have different ideologies. And or so definitely have different religions. Religiosity has become very partisan coded in a way it did not used to be. So in some ways, this is almost a very fluid, consistent story that there was intolerance for these things in the beginning. It's just now that they're really nice, nice pre-packaged and a nice plastic, look, you are this and therefore you are part of this. And, right. Well, and that, that book I've referenced, she talked about that, that like this being Christian, being evangelical did not used to make you a Republican, but now it does. Being an atheist did not used to mean that you were a Democrat, but now it, it typically does. <laughs> 
with like 90% accuracy on some of these things. And and so they've they've become coded into partisanship. And now, yeah, we just have this this new label. So people, I guess that's also part of it for me. People don't hate each other more than they used to. They just hate people for different labels. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like it's the human condition. And this is just it's not depressing you all. It's yeah, just different it's just, labels. It's that's all. Everybody hates everybody, but at least they hate about this is the reason we call this yeah. poly sci after all, not poly yay. <laughs> um, so this, I'm curious, I guess, on two fronts, on how you personally practice this. And then also if you see any more generalizable studies that say, is there any way to actually cut through the context of polarization today? Is there, Are there avenues, methods, specific settings where you can actually start moderating some of this tension in between partisanship divides. Yeah, absolutely. So take one of my findings, drop it, flip it, reverse it, and you get this idea that having more contact, interpersonal one-on-one contact with people of the opposite political party will make you more tolerant toward them. It will typically make you less polarized. If you have a diverse group of people you talk about politics with, typically, but it has to be in person. Don't do this on social media. You'll end up probably just hating them more. Um, but what's the reason behind that? If you could so, just break that yeah, down. So the idea is that if you have increased contact with a heterogeneous group of people, you get this sense of what their opinions are and they don't seem so crazy to you when somebody's sitting across the table and people tend to be pretty kind to each other one-on-one. Again, with the human condition, we we are conditioned to be nice to people on the whole. You might not think it, but we really are. Is it different from New England versus <laughs> the Midwest, like- <laughs> where I hail from? Uh, perhaps. But yeah, like the, I think the best way is, this is not a political site, but I love her so much. So I'm going to quote Brene Brown, who is a, um, for people who don't know, she's like a self-help author, but she also has a PhD in social work. And she does a lot of qualitative analysis. Um, and I do pretty much purely quantitative analysis. So I like to read other stuff. And she has this quote that I really love. And it's it's hard to hate up close. It's really hard to hate Republicans when my dad is a Republican and he will drop everything he's doing to help me move across the country. And it's it's harder when I think about, you know, you think about that as as that. It's harder to hate Democrats if my daughter is a Democrat and if when, you know, my pet passes away, they come and she like cooks us dinner and is really kind through that process. It's it's easier when we think about it as individuals rather than as groups. And so I think that's that might be one way to cut through it that's pretty easy for people to attain is just talk to people. And I don't know, honestly, Owen, I'm not the best at this. I tend to find myself to be quite affectively polarized despite what I know about it. It's just. Objective scientist researcher. You have, you have <laughs> in, no predilections in, in at my, all. In my research, I actually try really hard to be, but in my personal life, I'm not. And so it's a little hard because I, I sometimes feel this kind of push and that's like, well, but I don't agree with them. And I do think that their policies are are bad. And I do think sometimes that people who believe that are immoral people. They don't hold my values and my values. They're right, obviously, because they're mine. You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's how we think. And and so, yeah, also 
try to be really careful about not engaging in something that's called motivated reasoning, which is where you engage with pieces that are of the opposite political bent and bias in such a way that you tear them apart and don't believe them because you find any little way they could be a flaw to not believe them. But then on pieces that are of your own bias, you just accept them without even thinking. That is motivated reasoning. And try not to engage in that. Try to be pretty equally critical of everything. I think that would be good too. So these days, because there does seem to be a catch-22 here where this is your biological family. So you you know them through that connection. Whereas you're going to usually find social groups through similar values and, and through more like literal uh, structural constraints like vocation, like education, these sort of things. So are you seeing a trend where it's hard to even find people from the opposite group in the very first place? So you can't even start to have these conversations? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, perhaps. It, it depends on where you live, too. Some places are so homogenous on partisanship. You, you, can't, you can't find more than like 10% of people in some places that are of a certain partisanship. But there are places that people are hiding. And I'm not saying you should just walk up to random strangers, but maybe somebody who plays Dungeons and Dragons with you. Just ask them a kind of innocuous question and start getting to know them and see, like, do we actually share the same beliefs? Because I don't know about you, but I know a lot of libertarians who play Dungeons and Dragons. And <laughs> that's a really different political bent, you know, and, and it it can be helpful. And I'm not saying you need to change your beliefs. Actually, I would suggest against that. That's that would be disingenuous. But more just try try to find people like that. Like they're probably around you. You just don't know it. And I think that that would be helpful, too. Oh, yeah. I, I think definitely that everyone is kind of guilty following this trap where we're all of a sudden one label leads to another. And then all of a sudden you're a whole package where it's not that this is a very copy and paste that one Democrat is not going to look like the other and likewise for Republicans there. So I'm curious if you're, if you're actually getting into deeper conversations with some of these people, is it just that you're now moving the conversation away from assumed identities to like literal differences in policy? Or is it just personification that you're a real human who I shouldn't it's, punch? Yeah, it's more the second. Um, it's a little bit policy, but that's just, we don't care that much. Like we say we care so much about policy, but it's, it's maybe we do, but a lot of people don't. It's more the package thing. And it's more that it's it's that hard to hate up close thing. It's that that is a human. And well, heck, maybe other Democrats are humans, too. Maybe other Republicans are humans, too. And maybe I should view them as as a human instead of as a pure partisan who believes those things and therefore is bad. And I think we all know people who are Republicans who are like Mitch Romney, Mitch, Mitch Romney. <laughs> Did I seriously Mitt Romney? <laughs> Mitt Romney supporters type Republicans. And then we know the Donald Trump supporting type Republicans. And then we know the Bernie Sanders Democrats and the Joe Biden Democrats. And let's not view everybody as such a homogenous ball. I think that will be helpful too. So there is possibly a way out of this because, I mean, I think you also point out how whatever happens to the current Trump administration, it's not like a lot of this tension is just going to disappear and when you have people living in different areas and being exposed to different social networks, it's not like there's going to be immediate fusion 
if you had a magic wand, is there anything you could implement or perhaps even just relative to your social networks coming up to the election? Have you like tried to reach out to people saying like, hey, I consider you to look at my perspective or not even change their vote per se, but just get them to be perhaps a little bit more on the same civil page? Yeah. So I certainly have not done that via social media. That's just not how I like to communicate these sorts of things. I have done that with like my dad and with my grandma and with people who I know politically disagree with me, but I I have pretty strong opinions on a lot of everything. I have strong opinions on everything. And I <laughs> I try to I try to think how could I best discuss this with them that we're not going to get mad and that we're not going to just start calling each other names but that we're going to have a discussion. And I think that 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 can be a thing and I I also I do want to point out we can't control other people. We can't control the news. And so going into it with this idea that like we if we do this there's a way out of it. I don't know if there's a way out of it in general unless everybody engaged in good behaviors, normatively good behaviors. But we can do it for ourselves and we can make ourselves feel better and then we can practice a little bit of conscious detachment from the other stuff that we are aware of it but we cannot fix it and therefore we do not let it ruin our day. If we understand you, Courtney, as someone who grew up feeling perhaps like you didn't actually align with your family in terms of partisan lines, is there lessons from your own personal experiences that you think are actually generalizable as to how you not only came to kind of think a different way, but also still keep in touch with your family, for example? Like you didn't just straight up just like, nah, I'm out. Sure. Yeah. So I will say I in... Up until college, I never agreed with them on social issues, but on economic issues, I was a lot more sympathetic to them. And then I got to college, and then that that changed too, and then I just became the opposite partisanship. And a couple of, I guess, suggestions for for my budding my budding people who are changing their partisanships. Uh, you do you, boo. Like, don't let your family or anything else dictate your viewpoints because then you're going to be disingenuous, I guess. Like, you are allowed to have your own political opinions. I mean, maybe don't be terrible. Like, please don't. I will denounce white supremacy on this podcast right now. And don't do not do that, you know? But, like, you can, you can choose to be a Democrat if your whole family are Republicans. And you can choose to be a Republican if your whole family are Democrats. And they're probably going to give you, give you some heck. But just learn to not care, I guess. And then the other thing I would say is that I have a really strict boundary with my family. When they're in a group, they really love to try to gang up on me. (laughs) So what I like to do is I have a boundary that if we start talking about politics, I'll leave. And then I leave because there's no point to one person arguing eight, right? But one-on-one, I will absolutely have these discussions. And one-on-one, they never end in crying and yelling and disliking each other. One-on-one, they're always fine. So yeah, I just set boundaries, healthy boundaries. Do that in all areas of your life. Like, just have healthy boundaries. (laughs) And equal platforms, I feel like, is something you can definitely take away, where I think whenever you're either a difference in numbers or a difference in like power relations or perspective, probably not going to be as much understanding and cutting through right. the static. Well, we do have, we have, pow- there's a lot of inter- interlacing power dynamics there where I am the daughter, the granddaughter, the niece, but I'm also a political science PhD candidate and I teach college level statistics courses. 
So like I have a lot of that that kind of legitimacy that I didn't used to have and it has changed the dynamic and there's just no point <laughs> to it to it becoming a if everybody gets angry nobody's learning. So yeah, just peace out of there. That's my advice. Is there anything in terms is there anything that are big misunderstandings or just big things that you want to say to like a larger public audience of saying that this is totally wrong yeah i have two i have two that come to mind one i'm going to say both so i don't forget one one is age the effect of age on partisanship and the other is the polls in 2016 so (laughs) all right i'll start with age because it's easy there's no empirical evidence that as you get older you become more republican there's just, it's just not a thing. What happens is you you pick a partisanship, usually in your late teens, early 20s. And as you vote for that partisanship, you become a stronger partisan. You become more entrenched in your partisanship. Certain age cohorts, so certain groups of people tend to be more one or the other. P- baby boomers tend to be more conservative. Millennials tend to be more liberal. Gen Zs tend to be more liberal yet. But there is not actually any evidence that as you get older, you become more conservative. That's like a lie. I don't know why that's a thing. The snowflakes now are going to be snowflakes in their 70s. Yeah, they'll snowflake forever. (laughs) Um, Winter winter shall never leave if we're snowflakes forever. Um, Yeah, the other is the the polls in 2016. I just, I, I can't. Like, polls being misrepresented does not make polls wrong. And um, having a bunch of states that were in within the margin of error all go one direction is a statistically quantifiable phenomena that is not like an unknown thing it's just that you have a correlation between your error terms and they all went in the same direction it's called autocorrelation and so um that's a thing and what happened in 2016 was that a lot of states that were within the margin of error remember that's that's that like plus or minus three, that if we think that Biden is at 48 and Trump is at 41, plus or minus three. So Trump could really be anywhere from 38 to 44 and Biden so on. So if the margin of error is overlapping, it's called within the margin of error. It's It would be like, you know, Clinton 50, Trump 48 with a margin of error of three. Those are overlapping. (laughs) That means we don't know. That means there's not enough variance between the proportionality of that sample to get a a small enough margin of error that we can actually like suss out the difference. And then having all the polls go in the same direction is it's it's almost to be expected that similar states would go similar directions in elections. So I just am seeing it a lot now. Nobody's trusting the polls right now. Um, And national polls do bear in mind when they are national. Because we don't elect our president nationally. We elect our president. No, it's not by a national popular vote. It is by electoral college. But you can go to a website called 270 to win. And you can look at the probable outcomes of different states. And you can look at different polls. You can click on a map and get different outcomes. And you can see it that way. And so long as the sample is representative and large enough... And so long as there are multiple samples that are reflecting the same thing, we can have pretty good confidence in those. So I just, uh, it's driving, it's just making me a little, a little upset <laughs> to see this mischaracterization because now nobody trusts like 538 and everybody gets mad at Nate Silver all the time. And I just don't think that's a very fair characterization of what occurred. That's my name is not bronze. <laughs> no, he's silver. He might not be gold, but let him stay silver. And that's that. <laughs> There's a margin of error after yes. all. 
what do you care most about your research? And what are you hoping that the time you spend in this field is going to hopefully accomplish? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess what I care most about my research is that I help, I contribute to building an understanding of why people are behaving the way in that which they are. I just want to contribute to why. Because once you know why, you know how to correct at least yourself. You might be able to get some policy implementation, things like that. So I want to contribute to that. But then my career more broadly, honestly, I love teaching. It's my favorite thing. Um, and so I, I, I want to help students understand things that they didn't think they they could. Like I teach the statistics stuff and I never asked for it, but here I am. And um, people think that they're incapable. And I thought I was incapable of, of doing this before I started grad school. And it's not really true. You are capable. You just have to get your mind around the idea that, yeah, I can be a, you know, baller statistician if, <laughs> if I so choose. And so I really enjoy that part of my job is I can take people who just think it's, it's impossible for them to understand something and help them understand it. I think that that's another big goal that I have. Anything you want to leave the audience with as far as tangible steps on how to deal with this uncertain future that we face? Yeah. Um, There's a thing called tapping therapy that helps with anxiety. (laughs) Maybe look that up. And yeah, don't expect to know the outcome of the election on November 3rd. I'm hoping we do, but that might not happen. Don't let that freak you out. If you need to mute some people on social media... Mute them, protect your mental space, and try to remain civil with people. And I think that's that's pretty much seriously though, look into tapping therapy. It does really help. <laughs> tap by tap, step by step. Tap, tap by, by tap. tap. Step by step. Heart to heart. Person by person. <laughs> maybe we actually start reversing some of these trends. Courtney, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Courtney Johnson here does have her own podcast, Fierce Femme. I talk about, and my cousin, she's my co-host, and we talk about um, fierce women throughout history and uh, fierce non-binary people, trans women, and we cover their stories uh, that we basically think you already should have been taught, but weren't. Some of them, I cry on episodes, I don't know, like every third week, I just get really emotional about it. And it's just, it's a really nice outlet to, to talk about these stories of just people doing really incredible things, especially in a time like right now, like you were asking me about earlier, how I stay chipper. That's one of the ways in which I stay chipper is it's just like, you look at, you look at this, this woman who my favorite story was Carrie Ann Lucas, and she was a disability activist. And she did all these incredible things like in the last 10 years, despite all these obstacles. And it's like, dang. For the many people who are dismayed by this country's refusal to reckon with its racial injustice, who are confused how we got to where we are as a country, and to those who are witnessing a drastic transformation in political culture and breakdown in democratic norms, you are not alone. It's totally natural to feel paralyzed by such a tidal wave of circumstances. The news cycle is overwhelming, but these issues don't simply disappear when you mute your phone for an hour of yoga. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and here at PoliSci, we aim to clarify political topics and give you, the listener, ways to be a part of the solution. I definitely believe that a lot of what makes us sigh 
at least politically today, is due to differences and intentions across communities and honestly malice. But in terms of trying to find a way forward, I think that some of this conflict is also a product of a tacit lack of awareness. Here at PolySci, we think that there is knowledge and that there are resources out there that we can use to educate ourselves, which can make us realize political injustices that we should actually all be collectively invested in solving. As a grad student in political science, with the intention of becoming a professor in the field, I'm adamant that the teaching end of the job is essential to making impact because you're talking directly to people. But that has limitations, whether those be syllabus stuff, pressures for tenure, class load funding, just name a few things. So political science scholars spend most of their lives becoming experts in very particular issues and topics that actually have political real-world implications. And if they're unable to, or sadly have no interest in incorporating their studies into teaching, then more often than not, their research is just going to get shared in academic journals, hidden behind paywalls, university subscriptions, and undecipherable language. It's never going to find its way to a larger public audience. Many political scientists don't necessarily want their research to have such a fate. After all, they're dedicating their whole lives to this study. More often than not, they have some interest in their work, having a longer life, and having a larger impact than just dying off in some journal. But being so close to the resources, we feel that we are actually doing a disservice by not trying to help publicize some of the work that our colleagues are doing, especially if they're like Courtney and have underlying desires for their work to make some meaningful difference. And what we'll continue to do is track down such political science scholars and through our show, offer these invested scholars a way to reach people like you, both giving them an outlet and giving listeners tools in the world that, well, oftentimes just make you want to sigh. It's but one of our ways of poly trying in trying political times. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just realized that you said poly trying. <laughs> And we'll see you back here next month on Poli Sci. Until then. Bye.